Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Our mission is to strip away the myths and hype that often surround the aesthetics industry. Inside Aesthetics aims to get to the bottom of the important topics that concern medical and allied health professionals, as well as the consumers themselves. We'll be showcasing the thoughts and experiences of experts in their respective fields. Each podcast will focus on a specialty, including surgery, non-surgical procedures, nutrition, well-being, and business knowledge from the personalities that have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general educational information about cosmetic procedures and well-being. It does not promote or endorse any cosmetic procedure, brand, or product. You should seek professional medical assessment before considering any treatment. Our guest today is Dr. Angelo Sirbas, an expert orbital and ophthalmic facial plastic surgeon. He specializes in aesthetic oculofacial surgery and minimally invasive eye rejuvenation. His work focuses on blepharoplasty or eyelid surgery, brow lifts and surgery of the aging face. He's received international recognition for his innovative surgical techniques and is sought after by patients from around the world for help in correcting some of the most challenging and complicated cases. Good morning, Dr. Sirbas, for good morning. episode three. We've no, worked to too back. hard, haven't we? No, it's good to be back. Tri- trifecta. <laughs> no, it's good to be back. Um, so look, we, we've discussed in your previous episodes upper and lower eyelid surgery. Yes. And, you know, uh, I was actually got in touch with you originally through one of my friends and colleagues in the UK, yes. Dr. Rachnamurthy. Yes, yes. And, you know, she's obviously an Allegan trainer. We discuss injectables almost every day in a WhatsApp group. And it turned out that you are the local man who may or may not be involved in sort of dealing with some of the more serious issues with fillers and namely blindness. Correct. So can you just give a bit of a background to what really we're talking about for listeners who have never heard of this yes. or, or injectors who are worried about it? Correct. What, what's the... I'll start up with the basics, really. So... Uh, cosmetic injectables are various substances that are injected with uh, a needle or a cannula into the face. Yes. As they've become more popular, more injections have happened. And some of those patients have suddenly lost vision in one or both eyes straight after at the time of the injection. And the question has been, what's happening? And what's happening is that the needle or the cannula has ended up inadvertently into a blood vessel. The product has been injected and has traveled via the blood vessels into an area that supplies blood to the eye. It blocks it. It blocks it. It causes an embolism. It causes a mechanical block. Now, you might think, well, how can I be injecting somewhere in the chin or the nose, how can that cause blindness? Well, what happens is that the vascular anatomy of the face is very complex. And there are communications between the blood vessels on the face and the internal blood vessels that supply the eye and also that supply the brain. Yes. So sometimes when you inject the compound into a blood vessel, you do that at pressure sometimes. And what we think is that the blood vessel travels the wrong way, backward along these superficial vessels, till it gets to a point that when you release the syringe and the pressure comes off, it starts to go forward again, 
it goes into an area that supplies the back of the eye and causes an embolus. So just to reiterate that for people listening, you're squirting with a syringe with pressure of your thumb against the flow of blood. Exactly right. So you're pushing the product against the, the flow of blood because you're using a lot of force. Yeah. And it goes backwards. When you release the force, when you release the plunger, it starts to flow forward again. Yeah. But it ends up in a completely different spot yes. due to the variations and the connections in the vascular anatomy. That's fundamentally what happens. Yeah. And that causes blindness. Yeah. Now, we've got to put this into some sort of context, but, uh, you know, any injector worth their salt has to talk about this. Correct. Doing any filler injection, like you said, whether you're doing chin, lip, nose, anything. Correct. But this is, this is very rare. Let, let's be... So it's, it's extremely rare. And one of the difficulties that we've had and is coming up with how rare it is. So I examined the literature to present at a couple of international meetings on this topic a few months ago. And in the literature, we're up to about 200, 225 cases of blindness worldwide that have been reported in the literature. Ever. Now the, ever. Yeah. Now, there, there may be more. It's maybe some cases are not reported, but you would think on common sense grounds that if somebody had a catastrophic complication like blindness, they would see another physician or they would see an ophthalmologist. And that's an important point that I get back to in a little while. Yeah. So that patient would be captured by the data. Yes. But they may not be. So throughout all the history of injecting, now this is not a new phenomenon. You know, the first cases were reported when silicon oil was injected back in the 50s and 60s mm. and other cases were reported with steroid injections or fat injections it's just that in the last 10 years more and more cases have been reported with hyaluronic acid which is the dissolvable filler that is most commonly used for facial volume augmentation around the world yeah so why is it hard to get a number the difficulty stems from the fact that it's difficult to find out exactly how many syringes of product are used. Yeah. And obviously that information is commercially confidential. I'm working with a couple of other surgeons to try and get that information in a way that doesn't compromise any of the, the business relationships that the companies have so that we can come up with a rate. Yeah. I've conducted a survey in Australia and New Zealand of the College of Ophthalmology and all the ophthalmologists and the retinal specialists to try and work out how many of these patients that we've had locally. My assumption has been that somebody who has lost vision from one of these injections would eventually see an eye specialist. Somewhere locally. Somewhere along the line. Yeah. And we're in the good position in Australia and New Zealand that the College of Ophthalmology we have about 1,100 ophthalmologists in Australia and New Zealand, so I can survey all of them. Yes. And the response that we've had so far is that we've had two cases of blindness in Australia and New Zealand. Okay. Where somebody has lost vision completely. Yeah. In both eyes or just one eye? Just one eye. Just one eye. Are you so, in any position to talk about the specifics and certainly not to give any sure. confidential data, but... There are a lot of rumours and, and fears and worries and, and sure. sort of myths about the local one in Sydney. Yes. So, look, I've given a couple of lectures on the patient locally, and obviously there's been some media stories about that patient. But I think if we can talk in general terms, one of the things that I'd like to emphasise is 
this can happen to any injector. Yes. Whether they're a cosmetic injector, whether they're a physician, whether they're a surgeon. There are ways to minimize that risk, and we'll talk a little bit about that, and that's related to education, it's related to a knowledge of the anatomy, and it's related to how to manage and minimize potential problems. Yeah. There are areas that are more dangerous in terms of the case numbers of blindness than others. The central triad, injections in the glabella, which is the area between the eyebrows, and into the central third of the face, the nose, and interestingly enough, the lips. Yes. So those areas in the central third of the face have been responsible for the majority of episodes of blindness in the literature. Because we would, you know, we're we're educated as injectors to also include temple and forehead in that danger area. Correct. They haven't been replicated in the, there's certainly episodes of that occurring, but most of the cases have been in that central third. Okay. Now, why is that? Most of the cases in the literature have been from Northeast Asia, where cosmetic injectables are even more popular. Korea, for instance, are even more popular than here. Yes. And in that area, augmentation of the area between the temples and the forehead, sorry, between the eyebrows and the forehead is a really common procedure because that facial aesthetic is desired in that population group. Yes. So a lot of product is injected in those areas. So most of the cases have come from that area. Mm. We don't have a good handle in non-Asian populations whether those anatomical danger areas are going to be replicated in the figures. Yes. But most of them, uh, the majority, not the ma- not most, the majority, let's say 60% are in that central third. Now, you may ask, well, you know, was it a cannula? Was it a needle? The breakup was about even. Yes. In all the figures that I've looked at and the studies that I've looked at. And was it using hyaluronic acid fillers? Correct. So most of the recent cases are all hyaluronic acid fillers. Before about seven or eight years ago, there were about 100 cases in the literature, 97, of blindness. Most of those were from autologous fat. Yes. So the thinking at the time was that autologous fat, the globular molecules were a little bit larger, so, you know, they would cause more problems. Interestingly enough, in the last 10 years, most of the cases have been with hyaluronic acid. Yeah. Now, there's obviously some cases some cases with other types of permanent and semi-permanent fillers as well. But most of the cases are hyaluronic acid. Does that mean that it's more dangerous? Not necessarily. It's just mean that a lot more of that is being injected. So 90% of the higher than that of the fillers that are used are hyaluronic acid gel fillers. More likely to cause. And some of the figures that we have from the American Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons where they break down the, the cosmetic procedures and how they've been increasing in the last 10 years... So blepharoplasty has been increasing only a little bit, whereas cosmetic uh, injectables have had a tenfold increase from tenfold. Wow, ten years ago. So extraordinary levels of uptake, and I assume that that certainly will continue to increase as more people become educated. So the danger areas are, seem to be that central third. So the important things to stress are education and a knowledge of the vascular anatomy. Yeah. So the information that I've looked at doesn't necessarily lend itself to any hard and fast rules. There's not enough data for us 
or for me to say, you have to do this, you must do that. Basic principles are a knowledge of the anatomy and an experience in injecting in various areas and an awareness of the potential complications. Yes. Now, what do you tell a patient? Because the patients have heard about these stories and they'll say, well, what's the risk of blindness? Now, I think it would be safe to say that the risk is less than one in 100,000. It's probably significantly less than that, but we don't know. Just to give you an idea, I think, you know, last year uh, in Australia, there were about 20 people that were struck by lightning. Yeah. And they're... In the last 10 years here in Australia, there have been two people that have lost vision from injectable fillers. Now, the case here in Sydney was an injection into the tip of the nose. Okay. That's not what I heard, so that's good to put these yeah. myths to bed. Yeah, so it was an injection on the tip of the nose and with a cannula, and the patient lost vision straight away. One eye. One eye. Well, like immediately as... Immediately. And that's the common <coughs> story from my inspection of the medical literature. So patients lose... If this complication is going to occur, if patients are going to go blind, it happens straight away. Yeah. So they don't... Patients... There's no cases where you've made an injection and a week later the patient's called you and said, oh, look, suddenly I've lost vision. That's not going to happen. The embolus happens at the time of the injection. So it's just like lights out. Lights out. Right. And you, painful, painful in many cases. Okay. I was going to say, are there any other there symptoms are. that we should yeah. be looking and- Yeah. So probably 75% of the patients in the literature had severe pain. And that relates to exactly where the embolus is mm -hmm. and how much of the vascular uh, chain is blocked. Yes. Now, it's important to note that vascular ischemic events, apart from blindness- are actually more common than we think. Yeah. So superficial blockage of a little vessel uh, in the nasolabial fold, at the tip of the nose, uh, in the temple, or around the eyebrows is much more common than we think. And often that's a little bit delayed. That might be a few days to a week later. And often people think it's infection. You know, they'll see it and it's a little bit pustular and the skin's breaking down a little bit, but often it's ischemia. Yes. And there's different protocol for different methods of treating that. But the but we're talking specifically today about the most catastrophic vascular complication, which is obviously blindness. So the critical thing is that this happens immediately. It's often very painful. And the patient will talk about a curtain descending or suddenly losing vision. So the question has been, you know, what do you do then? Yeah. Sorry, is the pain in the eye or would it be at the ejection point? No, the pain seems to be in the orbit itself. And oh, the reason okay. that happens is that the embolus is usually big enough to block the ophthalmic artery. And the ophthalmic artery supplies uh, the muscles that move the eye, the muscles that lift the eyelid, the levator. So often these patients will can present with complete ptosis. Mm. So suddenly the eyelid's not... Now, interestingly enough, a lot of the other muscles, the eyelid muscle, the extraocular muscles, they recover. Okay. So patients that initially had ptosis or couldn't move their eyelid, that's gotten better. What doesn't get better is the retina, which is the layer at the back of the eye that we use for vision. Yes. Just to complete the story, 
are there any circumstances of different patterns? So just like half, uh, uh, you know, you can't, you can't see the lateral part of your vision, but you can see the middle. There are some, but it's not common. Okay. It's not common. The commonest thing that people describe is a complete loss of vision. Okay. Now, usually there are various patterns, as you quite rightly pointed out, Jake, where depending on which vessel is exactly blocked, you might get different types of defects. But the common commonest is an ophthalmic artery okay. occlusion, Yeah, usually total. Now, some of the ones where patients might say, well, my vision's a little bit grey or it's a little bit grey down there, they have gotten better. Now, why is that? The reason is because the embolus has presumably been much smaller and gotten further down the vascular tree to a little smaller area yeah. that has had some recovery. But the further proximal you are at the back of the eye, by proximal, I mean, if, if a big blood vessel is blocked that supplies the eye and structures, you're going to yep. be have real problems and usually those patients present immediately with complete blindness yeah um going back to what you were saying about you know trying to categorize one in maybe a hundred thousand maybe it's more maybe it's less as soon as you say that to a client they go oh, i don't want that then i'm not going to do x yeah look it's it's a difficult conversation it's a conversation that we have in surgery all the time correct if you if you uh, say uh, I'm going to do a major abdominal operation and you might bleed correct. to death. Correct. Most people go, oh, okay, well, it's pretty rare. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. Correct. Is you say blindness for an elective procedure and many people walk out the door and say, no, thank you. Correct. So I think it's important. It also happens, you know, when, uh, when I'm doing blepharoplasty, people ask about the rate of surgical complications. So it's important to uh, get a feeling from the patient and an understanding from their patient of whether they really understand the level of that risk. And that's our role as clinicians, because informed consent is obviously very important. Yes. And there's a big difference between just giving patients a list of figures with the risks on them and, and, explaining, it, and explaining it to them. And sometimes you need to couch it into, you know, a comparative things, you know, where the risk of a motor vehicle accident, in number of people that have, died on Australian roads last year is much higher than the risk of going blind from a vascular injection. You happily drive every day. Exactly right. So you have to speak to the patient. Most patients, I think, are reasonable enough to understand, you know, that that very small risk of blindness from a facial filler is something that they're happy to to live with there are is a small there is a small proportion of patients of 100 percent that, that, that are not right you yeah. know that are not i mean this might be a stupid analogy but i say to them look do you like going to the beach and swimming in the ocean they go yeah sure of course do it every weekend then you say how many people were eaten by sharks a year in australia and i don't know the number let's say it's 10 or 5 that's way more than the people who are going blind over 10 years correct and yet you don't think about the risk going to the ocean you just do it correct yeah. so I try and give them some sort of analogy, but it- I, I think a comparison's useful, and but there is a small subset of patients. I think you're right, you know, and I see them in surgery where they'll say to me, you know, I'd like you to do this blepharoplasty and there to be no incision, and I say, well, I really, <laughs> sorry, I, I really can't do that. I need a plasma wand. <laughs> yeah. I said I can't do that. So you know, there will be some patients that will say to you, look, I'm not going to have anything that has got any risk, and you say, well, I think um, I think part of people's uh, pushback or, or fear of these complications is two, two. One is it's outside of their control. 
when you're driving a car, you're in control. So I think Correct. there's an element of that's that right. might happen to me because I know what I'm doing, right? Exactly right. And then it's also just fear of something that's just they're not they're not familiar with. Correct. It, it's it's foreign. I mean, everyone most people get in a car every day. They cross the road. They go to the beach. It's just normal day to day activity. We understand there's risk. But it's part of our everyday life. When you're going for a procedure where you've got a surgeon and, you know, it's very scary. It and is. And it's outside of their control. I think that's why people are more afraid of these things because yeah. they're, they're not in control and they're not familiar with it. Oh, I think that's very true. And the risks, you know, that people have to deal with in surgery are, you know, certainly there as well. Absolutely. And blindness is such a, I mean, of all the senses to go, Correct. I mean, you know, no one wants to lose a sense. But I think of all of them, if you had to choose between smells, hearing and sight yeah sight would be the one that would probably change your life most more significantly than anything it is, else yeah i mean it's a catastrophic complication i mean there's no no hedging that yeah absolutely so you rightly touched on the fact that you can't give a rigid protocol to to how this Correct. is managed whether it's in central sydney dubbo my room your room it Correct. it's always going to be bespoken different isn't it I, I think the most important things with management are the education around trying to minimize the risk. Yeah. I think that's really critical. And what we've been trying to do with a, a, a group of other professionals, and I'm presenting on this at the uh, Australian Society of Aesthetic Dermatology next month. Yeah. There's a couple of us, a plastic surgeon, Stephen Liu, and dermatologist, Greg Goodman, and we've tried to get together to come up with some ideas as to what the risk is. And if it occurs, what some of the things that you might do. Now, I've looked at all the literature. Some of the fundamental things that are really important for anybody doing this anywhere are to recognize the complication and to seek appropriate care. Yes. It's really important if somebody has that complication to go to them, go with them to the emergency department. We're educating ophthalmology trainees to recognize this as a vascular complication. How are you going to wheel that out into their syllabus or how, yeah. how are you going to do that? So we're working with the college, with the internal group of the Australian Society of Oculoplastic and Reconstructive Surgeons to Great. try and educate ophthalmologists. So I, I guess I'm in the unique position in that I'm one of the few ophthalmologists that has an interest in injecting. Yes. And oculoplastics and aesthetics. So that's a, there's only a very small group of us. So what has happened in other countries is that often this patient may have a catastrophic complication. They'll be given a letter and said, oh, just go to your local emergency department. So they'll sit in the emergency department for a few hours, which is already too late. The retinal survival time is probably about two hours. So they'll sit in the emergency department and then they'll be seen by the stroke registrar or the neurology department or various other things. And it might be three or four days later that an ophthalmologist is actually called to see the patient. Yeah. That's not the way we should be doing it. And till that education is in the syllabus and is all the registrars are made aware of it, I think it's really important that uh, us as injectors, whether you're a cosmetic injector or a surgeon, you need to go with the patient where they get help to the emergency department and say, look, you know, who's the ophthalmology registrar on call? This is the problem. This is what happened. And you may have to explain to them, listen, you know, this is a rare thing that can happen with filler. What they've got is a retinal embolus. We need to manage it as such. Now, what's the management of a retinal embolus? 
again, that's a difficult question. And what we try to do is different things. You know, we put some drops in to try and decrease the pressure in their eye. We give some tablets to try and decrease the pressure in the eye in the hope that that will move the embolus forward. Yes. We do some ocular massage. And then for hyaluronic acid gel emboli, we try to dissolve it. Yeah. Now, there's some debate about how to do this. And the way that we dissolve other areas of filler is with hyaluronidase. So it's an enzyme that dissolves hyaluronic acid. Yeah. Now, this is very useful for superficial vascular ischemia in the skin. So it's a very, very good treatment for that. Because you can sort of see it and target it. You can see it and you can inject into the area and it works pretty well in many of the papers that have published. Now, what's the evidence that it's useful in the eye? Again, looking at the evidence, it's touch and go. There's actually not many cases, if any, in the literature that show a patient's gone blind and recovered vision. There There's are one or two, aren't there? There are, there are, there's about 15 cases in the literature where that's reported as happening. When I went back to look at those cases individually, there's always something missing in terms of the vision was not recorded before the intervention or the intervention was not explained. So there may be some, but the evidence is not really super strong either way. Okay. Now, how do you inject this highlays? So usually as ophthalmologists, we're very comfortable with needles around the eye and behind the eyes. So we inject it into a intraconal retrobulbar position. So what does that mean? That means we inject the solution of hyaluronic acid, hyaluronidase rather, behind the eye, inside the muscle cone, where the, the retinal artery and the ophthalmic artery are in the area to yeah. try and dissolve the clot. Now, it's difficult to suggest that somebody in the field try that. A, they've never done it before. B, it's possible to injure the eye. And three, it's, it's reasonably difficult to do. So, And you've got a patient in pain writhing around screaming at you. Correct. So, it's a, so I I'm not prescriptive in terms of uh, I know there's a lot of stuff out there in the media about, you know, the protocol for this is, is X, Y, and Z. But I think we're a long way from calling something a protocol. Yes. There are suggestions of things that may be useful, and this is in that area. And Stephen Liu and I are doing some anatomic cadaver studies to try and work out where the best place to inject might be. Yeah. And it may, in fact, be the supraorbital artery or the supraorbital orbital notch you know that's an area that's accessible and it might be something that can be taught and it's away from the eye sure and it's a superficial landmark you can feel it or correct. measure it correct correct and, and you may be and then often you know in surgery for instance we see that vessel often when i'm doing an endoscopic brow lift or a brow lift i might see that vessel it's a vessel where you give local anesthetic you might sometimes get a bruise there a little bit of bleeding so you know where it is yeah so there may be some some use in the future that that's a better injecting site. We don't know at the moment. Yeah, You know, what I say to, to people now in my lecture series is that you've got to recognize the problem, try and work out ways to prevent it by educating yourself on the anatomy and low risk injecting. And that's all part of education. If you do have a complication, you know, you need to get help quickly with the right people and try to institute some interventions that might help. Yeah. And hyaluronidase is one of those interventions. And obviously we would try to inject that, you know, try and inject a super high dose to see if it helps. Yeah. Do hospitals carry hyaluronidase? They do. Okay. Yeah, they do. You know, 
again, it's one of those things where you need to be very active in going with the patient and saying to the first person, hey, we need to get this stuff hyaluronidase now. It's on the anaesthetic trolley usually when people give periobulbar blocks, so we need to have it here. Would it be advisable if the injector take would take it with, with them just yeah, in case? Yeah, I think that would be useful. And you've always got to have some in your rooms anyway, yeah. so it's important to have a, a store in your rooms wherever you are. And, you know, especially for, you know, for less less rare complications like the vascular ischemia, that would be an area where it would be really critical for the, you know, for you to have it on yeah. hand. Mm. You've got to know how to use it and make sure you can dissolve it up and so forth. Yeah. So it's quite, it sounds like every, every second is super critical. So if you can is. save a few minutes by having everything that you need. Correct. To, to sort of pass on to yeah. the hospital, then. And I, and I think if you have, you know, if you have a, somebody that you know, you know, if you have like an ocular plastic surgeon, whether it's in Melbourne or Sydney, that, that you have a relationship with and you can sort of pick up the phone and say, look, I think this has happened. Yeah. Sometimes it's good to be able to speak to somebody with an ophthalmic background that, you know, they'll might say to you, well, I want you to go back and check the vision. Yeah. You know, how do I do that? Just get them t to read a card. And that gives us an idea. You know, most physicians know how to check the pupil reflex. Just check that for me. You know, listen, we're going to do this now. It's It's always good to have some guidance, especially in a super stressful situation like that yeah you just had about uh about a thousand cosmetic nurses just add you to their uh <laughs> their <Yeah>. speed dial <laughs> i mean it's actually a really interesting point i've spoken to a lot of injectors about this it's a, it's a really hot topic which is why we're doing this and yes a lot of them feel like they should have someone on speed dial yes and <clears throat> some sort of you know pathway that just magically happens and unfortunately it depends where you live it does look i think it's a good question i think one of the important things and i suggest this in my lecture series is that you have the ophthalmology registrars on call at the various hospitals where you are available in your clinic now that's difficult say if you're in the country yeah. and there's, there's no one on call right so that's a different situation but let's say in sydney say you're working in the west you have Liverpool Hospital ophthalmology registrar on call is this. Yes. At least or, you know how to get At least get you hold know. Them. Yeah, you know how to well, get hold of them. Switchboard's number on your phone. Exactly. You know, just say, look, I'll, you know, tell the staff, you know, I want you to get this person on the line and just talk to them. And I think that's really the first uh, port of call. I think if you think you've had a catastrophic complication like this, yeah. it's the ophthalmology registrar on call at the various hospitals. And there's always someone in the city, obviously, whether you are, you know, at the North Shore or the St. Vincent's or, you know, Prince of Wales, Alfred, yeah, yeah RPA, there's always someone that you can talk to. Now, the difficulty comes with there's been such an expansion of injectables that many of the clinics are in smaller regional towns yeah. Yeah. and they might be not a physician there might be a uh you know an, an injector that has their regular uh, monthly travels whether it's to the outback or to regional towns in new south wales and i think what you have to do in that situation is i think you still have to ring into the ophthalmology registrar in the city or the closest place and say listen you know i need some advice you know we're two hours away what can i do yeah and then the ophthalmology registrar, once they've got that, they would probably ring their bosses or an ocular plastic surgeon and say, hey, listen, I've just been called by somebody from Pepper Tree Gully and they think this has happened. 
this is the number, you know, what can we do? Yeah. yeah. So I think that's something that I think, you know, is a good pathway to get help. So, I mean, I guess anyone listening now, just look up your local major hospitals. Correct. Get Switchboard's number on your phone. Yeah. Maybe even explore how to get hold of ophthalmology directly, like you said. Yeah, I think there's so, there's always at the major hospital, there's always an ophthalmology registrar on call. Yeah. And the Switchboard will have that number. And you say, look, I want you to page the ophthalmology registrar. Yeah. And I'll speak to you. You know, I've worked in a few hospitals out Correct. in You've the West and, and they don't have plastics on site and they, they don't, don't have ophthalmology. So they don't. Just look into what services are available. Exactly right. I think that's really important. And also, you know, I think if one of the things with uh, vascular occlusions uh, around the eye, that in these cases of blindness, often people have uh, superficial skin necrosis in the area of supply as well, whether mm -hmm. it's the tip of the nose or the glabella or the forehead. But interestingly enough, almost all of that, those patients, that's recovered without a requirement of skin grafts or flaps. Yes. So one of the things that, you know, in the patients that had blindness, one of the first clinics that they were referred to was the plastics clinic because people thought, well, maybe they're going to need a skin graft or a flap, but almost all of them had healed it by itself. Yeah. yeah right. Now, I'm very happy to share an experience. I've been injecting for 11 years and I've had two occlusions. Right. One was on the bridge of the nose. The other was on the sort of corner of the jaw. Yes. And, uh, you know, if you, if you recognize this stuff, early yes and you jump on it with the hyaluronidase. on a days yes. uh you know if you go to face coach which is a third-party training company they'll teach you how to mix up hyaluronidase on a days yes and how to recognize occlusions and how to manage it and i can't recommend it more highly because yes. you know i learned from that but um you know if you treat this stuff early often it's salvageable i'm not talking about blindness i'm talking Correct. about occlusions Correct. Of the i skin. agree yeah i agree and there's you know the, the that's i think probably more common than it's reported I mean, it, it must be, you would think. It's very... It, it must be. And yet you don't see that much about that. Like, I mean, I would go to various uh, international and local meetings. There's not that much about somebody standing up and saying, Only well, you know, in, in my last thousand injections uh, around the nose, I had three uh, vascular occlusions and this is how we treated them. I think that would be really useful information for everybody. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's complications the only people that don't have complications are people that don't do anything yeah so we all, enough, we all yeah. have complications in whatever you do it's the management of those problems yeah. that really separates good clinical care from yeah the other so would your advice be to injectors whether they be physicians or nurses or, or surgeons that, that work in this area as well um to minimise the chances of this happening, would your advice be to try and avoid that that sort of central trifecta area, or is there any techniques? Yeah, or things there that are. Could... Look, I think there's there's a there's a suggestion of various techniques in terms of you know using things that are slightly higher gauge and not fine that may not be into the vessels, trying to uh, reflux on the syringe before you inject, trying to inject softly, small amounts of injection. These are all suggestions to avoid vascular injury in any area. And they're part of a good surgical technique anyway. Yeah. Now, there's some suggestion that this central area is a little bit more dangerous than other areas. So one of the things that I would recommend is that you, if you're a new injector and you're just learning or you've done the courses and you're out in private practice, start with areas that are perhaps rest, less risky than other areas. I think the temples, like you said, that central third, the nose, are 
have been associated with more vascular occlusion, for instance, than the lateral cheek. You know, that's an area that's very close to the surface and is safe. So there's some suggestion that you should graduate from less risky areas to a, and that's a normal progression for I mean that happens in surgery you start doing easier operations and you do more difficult ones yeah so I don't think I would recommend you know not injecting into the nose or not injecting into the glabella but you need to be confident and experienced I think to be injecting in those areas yeah not necessarily to decrease the risk of blindness. Obviously, that's the most catastrophic complication. But other complications, such as localized vascular occlusions and infection, are always a bit more common in those areas as well. Yeah. So if you're comfortable and experienced injecting in those areas, I don't think there's any prescriptive suggestions that I might make in that you shouldn't go there at all. Yeah. I don't think that's reasonable. Yeah, I mean, look, after my occlusion on the nose, I took a deliberate break from just noses. I spoke to... All of my colleagues, including Stephen, Greg, Goodman, a yeah. hundred other people, just because, you know, you want to get a handle on, am I doing everything right and in the best way with the best up-to-date techniques and avoiding as much risk as possible? Yes. And I think if you can, nothing is safe, but if you can try and manage that risk as best as you can and then communicate that to your client and if they're still happy, then I think, you know, someone has to hold their hand up and say, okay, I'm going to do this in the safest way possible rather than let them go to the beautician down the road. I think that's very true. I think, you know, people that are completely unaware of the potential problems are a part of the problem. You know, anybody who's injecting in these areas and thinks that it's really straightforward or, you know, it's very easy to get a good result and there's never a problem, I think fundamentally that's where the problems occur. Yeah. When, when, you know, people that realize that there are risks and take the time to train themselves and educate themselves, yeah. I mean, they're the people that we're all supporting. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And they're the people that minimize the risk. Absolutely. I mean, nothing nothing is without Correct. risk. It's just about taking every step that you can to, to minimize, minimize that. that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I guess just to wrap this up, where do you think you're going to go with your study into, uh, you know, the data? Yeah, so I'm presenting the study later on in the year at a couple of forums. There's a big international meeting in uh, San Francisco and then another one in Miami at the end, at the end of the year that um, we're tabulating the data now. To, there's a couple of other ophthalmic problems that have also occurred with injections in terms of eye muscle movement and some smaller issues that are as yet unreported. But we're trying to get the numbers to, to try and quantitate the relative risk of blindness from filler injections. And then we're trying to set up a program uh, both for uh, the ophthalmology trainee community to recognize the problem that's within the College of Ophthalmologists, which I'm a member of, and also uh, in the aesthetic injecting community to try and come up with a program perhaps of an education tool where you graduate from less risky areas to more risky areas. Yeah. So I think that's been discussed a little bit, and you know a little bit about that, Jake. Where yeah. Greg Goodman's got some good ideas on that. Yeah. And I think he's recently there's a you know there's a a group that includes quite a few dermatologists and plastic surgeons like Neem Cordiff is in that group yes. as well, and Steve Liu. So, um speaking with Greg and Stephen to try and get some ophthalmic input. It's interesting to me, and the reason that there's no ophthalmic input, I think, directly, 
there may be some indirectly, but there's no ophthalmic input directly is because traditionally ophthalmologists have not been interested in aesthetic medicine. Do you think that, you know, whilst this can never be prescriptive, at least you could say Sydney and Melbourne, these are the go-to men and women ophthalmologists that at least you might be worth trying to contact. Yeah, I think that's that's a good point. There's a colleague of mine who we work together, Dr. Benjamin Burt. He's an ocular plastic surgeon uh, in Melbourne, and he's spoken about this complication at various forums there as well. And myself here in Sydney, we're happy to help people or give some advice or suggestions of things that may decrease the risk yes. or ways to manage potential problems. There's another 1,000 emails to Dr. Stuvest. <laughs> right. <laughs> Send them on to Amy. Great. Well, thank you uh, so much. That this is such a, a controversial yeah. and, and interesting. Maybe it's topic. a difficult area. Yeah, it's yeah. a difficult area. Great. And maybe we'll get you back to update us as things evolve, because you know, for sure. No, yeah, there's always it's, it's an evolving area, I think, and we're going to learn a little bit more about the actual risk and the way to manage that risk in the next couple of years. I think. Amazing. Well, thank you for your generous time. We've had you for three episodes now. We know you're a busy man, so thank you. Thank you very Um, much. Before we let you go, just a reminder how people can get in contact with you, where you operate out from and and so on. Yeah, so it's the Jameson Street Day Surgery in the city and uh, doctoredservice.com. Perfect. And you're on um, social media as well under the same names. Under the same names, yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. I know you're going to operate now, so hope it all goes well. Thanks very much. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been great. Thank Thank you very much. Cheers. For our latest news, upcoming episode information and mini video clips of our guests, you can follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. We've also just started a YouTube channel called Inside Aesthetics and we'll be uploading more content and longer videos in the future.